Welcome back to the American Song Podcast, everybody. Last time around, we kicked off season three with the first half of our look at jazz rock. Today, we're picking that story back up again with a look at some of the great American and English jazz rock groups, including Steely Dan, Traffic, and Supertramp. If you're a fan of these bands, I think you're really going to enjoy this deep dive into some fantastic music. So let's get going. The success that Blood, Sweat and Tears and Chicago were having in the early 70s encouraged other like-minded musicians, like the members of Chicago. Many of them were brainy college students with some great musical chops. They formed bands that had obvious jazz tendencies. One of the greatest and longest lasting is Steely Dan. Donald Fagan and Walter Becker met at Bard College in Annandale, New York, and they formed the band in 1972. Their collaboration was heavily influenced by the kinds of music they both absorbed growing up in New York in the 1950s, especially their love and deep respect for jazz. In a 2006 interview with New York Magazine, Don Fagan talked about his musical heroes and the foundation they built for him. He said, I basically listened to the same 40 albums that I listened to in high school near Princeton. I had much better taste then. I was a kid jazz fan. I only like seven or eight of the greatest artists, Sonny Rollins, Charles Mingus, Miles Davis, Thelonious Monk. And I like big band arrangers like Gil Evans. Uh, when we started, it was kind of, we just get together and do both at once, you know, music and lyrics. I, I'd sit down at the piano and he'd have a guitar or a bass or something. Uh, as, as years went on, 
I I started maybe doing more of the music, and he was maybe uh, he would he would be brought in to sort of polish the music up, and then we'd work on lyrics together. Like yeah. I, I would just say, is this? I'd have a little piece. I'd say, is this any good? He'd say, no. <laughs> you know, say, how's how's this? And he said, you know, that's that sucks. <laughs> and then finally, I, I, you know, after a few things, I, I play a piece that he liked, and he said, "Yeah, we could start with uh, those uh, eight bars or, or whatever." We really thought very much alike, um, so uh, uh, we never, there was never, we never had any fights or anything until maybe years later. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, we tried to get a band together in New York uh, after uh, school was over. And, um, you know, we used to work in the Brill Building uh, with, uh, we actually, we, we had met these guys who were in this band called Jay and the Americans, which is kind of a, kind of a, a bit of a bubblegum act. They did good songs, though. They, they did some Libra and Solar songs and stuff. They were, they were supposed to be kind of the white drifters. We happened to walk into their office in the Brill Building, and we showed them some of our stuff, which in those days was just—it was before cassettes. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd just play the piano, and we'd sing. Uh... So they—they uh, they were interested, uh, but at the time they were also uh, coincidentally looking for a, uh, a bassist and a keyboard player. So we ended up uh, being in their band for like a couple of years, and that was kind of fun. So we were, uh, you know, and and they had like, you know, the band was this guy Jay, who was uh, the lead singer. Then they had these like four backup singers who were the Americans, Jay and the Americans. I see. And they uh, <laughs> they would sing harmony just like in a doo-wop type group, Style, and yeah. uh, Jay had a quite a powerful voice. It wasn't exactly something I like to listen to every day, but uh, <laughs> but they were professional, and it was great being in a professional band. One thing that's always been a hallmark of Steely Dan's music are the band's super tight, elegant, and intelligent arrangements. It's no big surprise that when you hear Fagan explain that most pop music, nothing much happens. You'll hear something and it's repeated. I like when there's some development. The jazz arrangers of the 50s and 60s really knew how to develop a piece of music. So listen to this excerpt from the title cut of their 1978 album, Asia.
This is sophisticated musicianship of the highest caliber. I'm such a fan of the way that they composed jazz-influenced instrumentation and chord sequences on top of more ordinary pop song structures. Another hallmark of Steely Dan's music is lyrics with a wry, hip sense of humor. It's no wonder that when you hear Fagan state in an interview that W.C. Fields had an impact on my life. He understood that most of life is just, you have to have the appearance that you know what you're doing. Steely Dan's lyrics are intelligent. Not surprising for two guys that met at a private college. They're both well-read. Fagan talked about his lyric writing in an interview he did around the time his solo album, Morph the Cat, was released. He said, when Walter and I met, we had a constellation of enthusiasms, really. Science fiction, jazz, black humor, novels by Thomas Berger, Terry Southern, Philip Roth, Vladimir Nabokov, and Kurt Vonnegut especially. That certainly influenced the lyric writing. We also liked comic songwriting like Tom Lehrer. This year we've been celebrating the 100th anniversary of the Civil War and the 50th anniversary of the beginning of World War I and the 20th anniversary of the end of World War II. So all in all, it's been a good year for the war buffs. <laughs> and 
a number of LPs and television specials have come out capitalizing on all this nostalgia <laughs> with, with particular emphasis on the songs of the various wars. I feel that if any songs are going to come out of World War III, we better start writing them now. <laughs> I have one here. You might call it a bit of pre-nostalgia. This is the song that some of the boys sang as they went bravely off to World War III. So long, Mom, I'm off to drop the bomb, so don't wait up for me. But while you swelter down there in your shelter, you can see me on your TV. While we're attacking frontally, watch Brinkley and Huntley, describing contrapuntally the cities we have lost. No need for you to miss a minute of the agonizing Holocaust. Yeah! Jones, he was a U.S. pilot, and no shrinking violet, was he? He was mighty proud when World War III was declared. He wasn't scared, no siree. And this is what he said on his way to Armageddon. So long, Mom, I'm off to drop the bomb, so don't wait up for me. But though I may roam, I'll come back to my home, although it may be a pile of debris. Remember, Mommy, I'm off to get a commie, so send me a salami and try to smile somehow. I'll look for you when the war is over, an hour and a half from now. Besides science fiction, Fagan and Becker both pointed to different forms of satire as being influential in their writing. They reference Mike Nichols and Elaine May, the Smothers Brothers, Beyond the Fringe, and Peter Sellers. To this heady mix, you can add a local New York comic like Chevy Chase, who's also another Bard College graduate, and a fellow classmate of Fagan and Becker's. Fagan even cites the writers C.M. Kornbluth and A.E. Von Vogt, both great social satirists. You can hear comic echoes of the way those guys were pulling from the socialist movement of the 30s. As Fagan put it, they had a very funny way of criticizing society. I really learned a lot from them. In its earliest configuration, Steely Dan was a six-member band.
Fagan, Becker, David Palmer on vocals in the song I'm a Fool to Do Your Dirty Work, Jeff Skunk Baxter on guitar, who is also a classically trained pianist, a drummer, co-founder of the Doobie Brothers, and an expert on military defense, who has even consulted for the Pentagon. Denny Diaz on guitar, another founding member that you might recognize as playing from the track Bodhisattva, where he cranked out pull-offs and runs that came straight out of bebop trumpet players, not rock guitarists. The result was a fluid, dynamic, and completely enthralling lead style that perfectly fit the song. Diaz was never the type to just let loose. Everything he played was perfectly placed and expertly timed down to the millisecond that it happened. And Jim Hodder on drums, but by 1975, only Fagan and Becker remained. In their original six-man format, Steely Dan was a fairly straight-ahead rock band. Their first singles included Do It Again, Reelin' in the Years, My Old School, and Ricky Don't Lose That Number. The group's name, slang for a dildo, was derived from a novel published in 1959 called Naked Lunch by the avant-garde writer William S. Burroughs. The phrase first was used in the lyrics of a free Steely Dan, Fagin Becker song, Soul Ram. Listening to it now. A sensitive understanding of Fagan and Becker's songs begs an empathy for those nearly forgotten days of the Cold War. Like many folks back then, they were afflicted with a needling agitation just below the surface of everyday reality. This was, at least in part, because of the Cold War and the constant looming threat of a global nuclear holocaust. Special feeling that love can bring 
Unlike many schoolboys of their place and time, the late 1950s and early 1960s, Donald and Walter liked to read literary novels and listen to jazz records. Sports, not so much. On the other hand, like many American boys of their time, they did have a healthy enthusiasm for baseball, baseball players, and Topps bubblegum, the gum that came with baseball cards in each package. Music, though, was the thing. Before they were out of high school, Donald had taught himself jazz piano, and Walter had become adept at both bass and guitar. After meeting as students at Bard, they began writing songs together. The common room in Becker's dormitory had a piano. The songs that they wrote echoed the music that influenced them. Chicago blues, soul music, and on a more limited basis, the British invasion. Dylan, too. By 1968, Fagan and Becker were sharing a cheap apartment in Brooklyn. Surrounded by cheap secondhand furniture, they honed their craft and they lucked into a gig, touring with a band called Jay and the Americans. This band actually had an office in the Brill Building, Tin Pan Alley, and one of the Americans, a guy named Kenny Vance, managed to play one of their tunes on a Barbara Streisand album. We're listening to Jay and the Americans' last hit, which was arranged by Fagan and Becker called Capture the Moment. At the same time, Donald and Walter also played a few sessions with Gary Katz. I talked about him in the last pre-break episode about Jazz Fusion. By 1971, and now living in L.A., Fagan and Becker had assembled the first incarnation of Steely Dan and released Can't Buy a Thrill. Can't Buy a Thrill in November of that year. It was a hit, coming up with great hit singles, Do It Again, Reeling in the Years, and Dirty Work, right out of the box. The next two albums that followed were Countdown to Ecstasy and Pretzel Logic. At this point, Donald Fagan had become the band's full-time frontman, and they added Michael McDonald in his pre-Doobie Brothers days, and drummer Jeff Porcaro who later became the drummer for the 80s band, Toto. You've been telling me you're a genius since you were 17. In all the time I've known you, I still don't know what you mean. The weekend at the college didn't turn out like you planned. The things that pass for knowledge I can't understand. Are you reeling in the years? Stowing away the time? Are you gathering up the tears? Have you had enough of mine? 
In its second stage, from 75 to 80, the group, now consisting solely of Fagan and Becker and supported by a steady procession of the jazz world's best studio musicians, decided to turn their full attention to writing and recording. Their sound was even heavier on the jazz side. Asia was written based on memories Fagan had about a Korean woman that the brother of one of his high school friends had married while stationed in Korea during the war. It's notable for a few other reasons too. For one, it's the last song that the band's original guitarist Denny Diaz played on before fading into the background as a session musician and eventually becoming, of all things, a computer programmer. Additionally, Timothy B. Schmidt, who just that year had joined the Eagles, sang backup. Mm -hmm. 
And there was an all-star roster of jazz musicians, including drummer Steve Gadd, Wayne Shorter from Weather Report on tenor sax, and Joe Sample on electric piano while Michael Omardian played piano. Michael Omardian's an interesting guy. From the Chicago suburb of Evanston, he's played with Loggins and Messina, The Four Tops, Johnny Rivers, Seals and Crofts, and Al Jarreau. He produced the first Christopher Cross album, played accordion on Billy Joel's The Piano Man, and produced hit records during the 70s, 80s, and 90s. He also wrote the arrangement and played piano on the USA for Africa track We Are the World, and he's won multiple Grammys. In the 1960s, he also helped to launch Campus Crusade for Christ. I think his greatest reward is still ahead of him. Just listen to the interplay of these musicians as the tension of the song builds. For all the world, to me, this is a sound painting. I picture a powerful rainstorm, complete with the thunder and lightning from Gad's powerful drums. All the while, Wayne Shorter's gale force tenor saxophone evokes howling winds blowing in from over the ocean. And then, towards the end, the sun reappears. produced some outstanding classic albums, including The Royal Scam, 
Asia and Gacho before Donald and Walter parted ways for a 13-year hiatus. Fagan and Becker reunited for a third stage to their career in the 1990s. Releasing two great albums, Two Against Nature and Everything Must Go. Jazz before it, rock started out as a stateside phenomena. But success breeds imitation, and it wasn't long before the sound made its way across the Atlantic, where it was picked up by a few notable groups, including Traffic and Supertramp. invasion. I talked about a child prodigy named Steve Winwood who started his career playing keys and singing in a band called the Spencer Davis Group. That band generated some great tunes like Gimme Some Lovin'. By 1967, Winwood, along with three other musicians, saxophone and flute player Chris Wood, guitarist Dave Mason, who also played on George Harrison's All Things Must Pass, Paul McCartney's Venus and Mars, The Stones' Beggar's Banquet, and Hendrix's Electric Ladyland, and the drummer Jim Capaldi, whose recording credits include playing with Clapton, George Harrison, Alvin Lee, Cat Stevens, Jimi Hendrix, and others, formed the band Traffic.
Traffic's unique sound was a meld of psychedelic rock and jazz. Their first album, Mr. Fantasy, which borrowed its title from this song, reached number 16 on the UK album charts and in America reached Billboard's top 200. second albums, Dave Mason left the band. And then Traffic released another album called Traffic, which became their most successful album in the UK. In 1970, they released John Barleycorn Must Die, and all but two of the tracks on this album were co-written by Winwood and Capaldi. It became their first commercially successful album. It went gold. So following John Barleycorn, Traffic released a live album named Welcome to the Canteen. This track, Medicated Goo, is from that live album in the United States. This album gained the band a larger U.S. following.
Their follow-up to that was an album called The Low Spark of High-Heeled Boys. became a top 10 album here in the United States. The title song from the album may be Traffic's greatest single moment. It stood out as merely a scrawled line in Jim Capaldi's notebook. The song's very quiet beginning gradually builds in intensity over a nearly 12-minute run. Along the way, there's great moments. Like two jazz men, Chris Wood's haunting saxophone creates a sonic texture with Jim Gordon's amazing drum work providing a solid padding underneath. Steve Winwood's Hammond organ riffs and arresting vocals push the song forward. The result is nothing less than a stunning 12-minute rock and roll symphony. Considered a staple on FM radio classic rock stations for years, it's been covered by the likes of Ricky Lee Jones, Widespread Panic, and The Dead. Fifty years on, it still blows listeners away. In 2004, the four original members of Traffic were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and they had plans to resurrect the band with new projects. Here's Dave Matthews, whose own music owes a debt to Traffic, 
at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame when he inducted the band. So when you're a little kid, and I was a little kid when I first heard Traffic, my, uh, my brother turned me on to all the cool music that I've, and still does, weird bands from Eastern Europe. Anyway, and that's what he does now. But when I was a little kid, he turned me on to lots of good stuff, Dylan and uh, the Beatles. That was his fault, too. I was little, too. And Traffic was one of them. I thought the first album of Traffic was Traffic, but if I, in fact, that was their second album. Their first album was Mr. Fantasy. That's a good one, isn't it? What I was gonna, what I was gonna talk about is, as a little kid, I, I just thought they wrote really great music about sort of cartoon, kind of cartoon characters and this wonderful thing. And then when I was twenty, 20 maybe nineteen or twenty, in my early twenties, I realized they, they were seeing cartoon characters probably. <laughs> you know, but uh, but when I was little, I just thought, wow, these guys are really having a lot of fun. Um, talking about cartoon characters. Um, uh, I want to say that, that they affected me in a great way when I was small, especially their first two albums. I loved singing them, and I loved singing along with them, and I thought I was some sort of... Uh, I was a member of their fantasy. Um, but there's a story that I have, which is really the reason that I accepted the honor of coming here and inducting traffic into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And that was, I, I think I was probably somewhere between 19 and 22. That, that's sort of a little blurry for me, or maybe it's a little earlier and a little later, but it's kind of blurry for me. Um, I was at a film festival in uh, Grahamstown, South Africa, and uh, at the university there, and, I, and I, I, I'd been drinking and uh, I'd also, and there'd been other things had been involved. There was smoke involved. That was involved. And there was, I think, there was other things that you could swallow that were involved too. So, and needless to say, I wasn't in great condition. And I'm not telling people that this is a good idea. I'm just saying this is what had happened to me. I'm being honest with you. And I was on a couch. I don't know whose couch it was. That's a sad thing. And I was in a house, and I don't know whose house it was. And I was, and I began to be afraid, terribly afraid. I know I was on a couch. I, I was with friends, but they could have been anywhere. I don't know where they were. And I was afraid, desperately afraid. I think I was going to hell. I don't mean that my sins were going to send me to hell, but I was actually en route <laughs> to hell at that point. You know, there was in the distance the devil's eyes. And, you know, and I was, and I thought I was... I was quite convinced that the end was near. And then, like a friend in a crowded room of scary strangers, I heard, Dear Mr. Fantasy, play me a tune. Something that'll make us all happy. And I thought, wow. Everything's gonna be okay. So, uh, because I honestly believe they're one of the greatest rock and roll bands of all time, 
and sometimes, and in fact, very often underappreciated, it is my enormous honor to induct traffic. The late Chris Wood, Jim Capaldi, Dave Mason, and the great Steve Winwood into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And here's Traffic's acceptance speech. Thank you. Thank you very much. Great speech that, wasn't it? Well, um, just want to thank everybody. It's a great honor for us. Uh, America adopted us a long time ago. And uh, uh, what can I say? Um, these two guys, um, I never forget meeting them. It's ingrained in my memory. I was blind drunk and I fell headlong into the gutter and there they were looking up at me. <laughs> and uh, I just want to thank uh, everybody in the foundation for putting us in. I got to thank my beautiful Brazilian wife who's here, Aninha tonight, and my two daughters sitting up there, Tabitha and Tallulah, you rock. <laughs> my mom and dad for making it possible that I exist. Although George would have told me you existed long before that, Jim. And uh, I just also want to say, you know, when um, you're 18 years of age, stood on a street corner in Worcester, in the Midlands, near where we all come from, and you say to your mates, I've got a great name for a band, Traffic. And then it comes to fruition and having been what I've been through, and standing here today here on the stage it just goes to show you how dangerous some ideas can be <laughs> this is chris wood's sister she's here for chris <laughs> stephanie Chris was a magic man in traffic. He was the one that came up with John Barleycorn Must Die, for those of you who remember that one. We sadly miss Chris, but it's just great. I'm just overwhelmed with this. It's fantastic. Traffic forever. Thank you. It's a great honor to be inducted, of course, into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Um, who'd have thought we'd still be making music at this age, but of course, Rock and roll is not an age, it's an attitude. So, um, and it's been a great honor to have made the music with these people. I mean, uh, they're just fantastic. Steve, incredible music musician. <coughs> and Jim, with those wonderful lyrics of his and great inspiration for a lot of the traffic songs. I want to thank the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame so much. God bless you all. Yeah. It's been a fantastic honor uh, to play and be a part of Traffic. So uh, thank you very much, and thank you for recognizing the spirit. Thank you very much. Thank you.
Well, we still have time to talk about one more band from London, England, and named after a novel originally published in 1908 called The Autobiography of a Super Tramp by William Henry Davies. Roger Hodgson and Rich Davies formed Super Tramp in 1969. While a lot of people have called them a prog band, to me, their jazz and blues roots always seemed prominent. Supertramp songwriter and keyboardist Rick Davies had been in a member of a band called The Joint. We're listening to a song of theirs right now called Freak. The Joint was the launching pad for both Davies and Hendrix's original bass player, Noel Redding. Now, the joint had a very well-heeled manager and financier named August Miske, who offered Davies a chance to start his own band after the joint burned out. On Miske's tab, Davies ran an ad in Melody Maker and recruited additional founding band members, including Roger Hodgson on bass and vocals, Richard Palmer, who, besides playing guitar, also wrote the lyrics for three of King Crimson's early albums, and Keith Baker on percussion. In the earliest days, the band went by the name Daddy. Like Rick Davies, Roger had been involved in a few earlier bands as well, including one called Argosy. which also included a pianist named Reginald Dwight, who very shortly afterward would become known around the world as Elton John, and Elton's future drummer, Nigel Olson. The band recorded just one single, though, an A-side called Mr. Boyd, side called Imagine. Early on, there was real chemistry with Davies and Hodgson that led to some of the best music of the era. Over time, however, the differences between the two men became more distracting until they finally drove a permanent wedge between Hodgson and Davies. Rick Davies came from a working class background, and he was hugely influenced by blues and jazz. 
Roger Hodson had more of a blue blood background. He'd gone to private schools and he went straight into the music business. His musical influences were more in the pop and psychedelia genres. You can hear the combination of their two backgrounds and most of Supertramp's golden era music. Davies and Hodgson co-wrote almost all of the band's songs and early on, Richard Palmer wrote all the lyrics. A surprising fact considering the searching, introspective lyrics that Roger Hodgson would write later on in the band's career. Rick's songs never had the same honesty that Roger's songs did. Supertramp's first gigs were played in Munich. This recording from 1970 shows them in great form playing Dylan's All Along the Watchtower. Here, this Dylan cover, which was also famously reworked by Hendrix, was one of just four numbers that the band could play together. But it was a start. Two albums, respectively titled Supertramp and Indelibly Stamped, were released in 70 and 71. Neither of these albums managed to attract much of a following, though. Having already invested a considerable sum, the band's manager and financial backer decided to move on in search of greener pastures. Supertramp's contract was not renewed, and the rest of the embryonic band quit, leaving Hodgson and Davies free to start again. They recruited their bassist, Dougie Thompson, and their sax player, John Helliwell, and a drummer from California named Bob Siebenberg, who had been hanging on in England on an expired passport, going under the pseudonym Bob C. Benberg. Benberg. <laughs> 
Point, an AM man from AM Records heard the band playing live, and AM gave Supertramp a new lease on life, a new start on the pursuit of stardom. The contract included small salaries for the band members and rent on an old English farmhouse. Living together and playing music constantly, Supertramp wrote the material for the next three albums Crime of the Century, Crisis What Crisis, and Even in the Quietest Moments. These three albums and the fourth, Breakfast in America, are really what I consider Supertramp's golden age. The albums were studded with brilliant songs. Some argue that Crime of the Century might have been the band's most cohesive album, but even here, the polar positions between Roger and Rick were clearly staked out. As a lyricist, Roger was always digging deeper, more authentic. songs on this album included Dreamer, the one we're listening to now. You might call it the more sonically sophisticated rendition of Paul McCartney's Fool on the Hill in its message.
In this song, called School, Hodson remembered back to his own school days when the school system seemed bent on extinguishing individuality and creativity and replacing it with responsibility. Roger remembered the period and the recording of Crime of the Century like this. Oh, it was, it was a powerful time. Um, I think the biggest difference, it, it is, it's a huge, it's stunning the difference between Indelibly Stamped and Crime of the Century. And I think that the difference was that Crime of the Century was the first time that the songs became personal. Um, before... For, for indelibly stamped, I was still trying to write a song the way other people wrote, you know. But for on Crime of the Century, suddenly it was it was my heart expressing itself. And hiding your shell, for example, was very much about me and about uh, how difficult life was for me at that time because I was 23 and had many questions and I was very. Um, shy and introvert and, and uh, you know, had, had a lot of, um, a lot going on inside. So I was, that expressed a lot of my kind of pain, if you like, and uh, all my um, uh, needing to find my way. And the same with Rick. Rick Rick's songs were very personal on that, that album, very powerful in another way. So it uh, had that very, uh, and then symbolically for, for the two of us, you know, the cover, the bars, that really was us trying to get out, I believe. Now, looking back, I didn't know it at the time, <laughs> but uh, I think that's that, that it was. Yeah, I think there were two very, very, um, I, don't know, I don't want to call us tortured souls, but uh, we were two, two men who were really trying to find peace in our life and trying to, to find... Uh, um, healing or whatever and and that that's what what was in crime of the century
In his song, Hiding Your Shell, Hodgson connects with the emotional pain that many adolescents feel as they try to find their niche in the world. The answer he offers up is that we need to be brave enough to persevere, continue to love, and continue to look for that person out there who is likewise looking for you. Roger's songs were deep, melodic, and sensitive. He frequently turned his attention to spiritual themes as well. Roger spoke about his writing in a recent interview, and he said, My spirituality is my compass. It affects the way I see life, the way I see music. And I really think of music as a service, my way to serve. I've always been service-oriented. The reason I've been touring now for almost 10 years straight is because of what I feel I'm able to give to the audience and help people, because these are tough times. To take people on a musical journey and uplift them and give them some hope, maybe take them on a journey where they can hear songs that will bring back some good memories for them. I think we've lost that aspect in the music world. My spiritual beliefs say that we're here to give and serve rather than to rape and pillage. Crime of the Century had been recorded across a span of six months. Giving the band lots of time to perfect the songs and achieve the album's compelling cohesion. On the other hand, A&M were eager to keep driving sales following the first two disastrous albums 
and they pressured the band into producing Crisis in just a few weeks during 1974. In an interview, Hodgson explained that Crisis came to mean more to us as a title than it did to other people because it really was a Crisis album. We learned how not to make an album, coming right off the road and going into the studio. It could have been much better than Crime of the Century, but it wasn't. We had a lot of bad luck in the studio. We really didn't enjoy making it, and in the end, it was a kind of a patch-up job. A lot of people liked it, but for us, it missed. The writing on Crisis was uneven. The album's got some really inspired moments, but there are too few of them and too many filler tracks. Songs written to round out a long album from what could have been a much more satisfying EP. With songs like Meaning and Just a Normal Day and the best cut on the album, Soapbox Opera, the best tracks were Rogers. Davies' Mind for Gold with songs like Lady and Another Man's Woman, but mostly he produced Brahms. wearing his heart on his sleeve in The Meaning, Roger agonizes over his efforts to understand life's deepest questions. Whereas Rick's biggest question on the album seemed to be, why can't my woman be true to me? Davis and Hodgson seemed to address their philosophical differences head on, something they'd continued to do on future albums.
Crisis What Crisis did not sell as well as Crime of the Century, and the band learned a hard lesson about filler tracks that don't propel an album forward. But by their fifth album, even in the quietest moments, Supertramp had learned that sometimes less can be more. It was three tracks and three minutes shorter than Crisis What Crisis. Davies and Hodgson delivered a more consistently great album this time, and from a thematic and emotional perspective, the songs each had more heft. The album starts in sunlight with Roger's glorious song, Give a Little Bit. But it ends on a much darker note as well, with the proggy track, Fool's Overture, echoing memories of the Second World War and the Nazi blitzkrieg over Britain. It simultaneously looked back to the war and ahead toward Armageddon. We hear Winston Churchill encouraging his nation to fight on bravely. And in the end, we are also reminded of the promise of a new Jerusalem in a way that actually reminds me of the final section of the Genesis track, Supper's Ready. Supertramp albums was 1979's Breakfast in America. With this album, the band had the number one selling record in the world. It's been listed among the top three prog rock albums ever, right up there with Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon and The Wall. Besides fitting within the prog category, the album has also been referred to as art rock, pop rock, and soft rock. Any way you look at it, though, it was their biggest selling album and loved by the critics. It won two Grammy Awards. Many of the tunes on Breakfast in America were shorter than the songs from earlier Super Champ albums. This made them perfect for FM radio. 
And in that pre-satellite radio era, FM radio was still king. In succession, Superchamp released The Logical Song, Goodbye Stranger, and Take the Long Way Home as singles. These all have become classics, along with a few others from Breakfast in America, such as Gone Hollywood and Child of Vision. might sound effortless, recording the album was anything but that. The backing tracks for Breakfast in America took about a month to record, and this was followed by a whopping seven months of overdubbing. Perfectionism ruled the day. As Roger Hodgson remembered later, I was in the studio seven days a week for so long that I ended up parking a motorhome in the parking lot right across of the studio and living in it. I was working 16 hours a day, every day of the week, trying to complete it. I knew we had something good, and I could not rest until every song was just right. Breakfast in America ended up selling more than 20 million copies. After years of laying the ground for this success, you'd think that these would have been great days for the band members. entertainment, success often brings more than fame and money. Lots of times, pressure and infighting also unfortunately come along for the ride. The rough edges in the relationship between Davies and Hodgson finally got the better of the band, and by the time of the follow-up to Breakfast, called Famous Last Words, things have become shredded. Roger had called the recording of Famous Last Words a nightmare experience. In this interview, though, the band's woodwinds player, John Helliwell, recalls it in a better light. It 
was a little fraught. Um, I kind of, en I enjoyed it. I get, you know, I'm, I'm the guy that gets on well with with everybody, so I kind of enjoyed it. And I, I had to go up to. I used to live in uh, Malibu, Topanga area in California, so we had to travel up to Nevada City, where near where Roger, Roger had his studio. We did a lot of recording there. Yeah. And um, I used to really enjoy enjoy it there. I had I, I had like perfect days recording. This this was my day. It was fabulous. Um, and then just kind of look around the studio, and then perhaps someone would say, "Yeah, we should we should do your solo now, John." I said, "Just play a little bit, have a nice little play." So then we all went out for dinner, and then we came back to the studio and did a bit more work, and then back to the, the little motel that I stayed in. So that those were my days when I, doing that album. enjoyed this month's latest journey through the roots of American song. As it's been since the beginning of this modern age of music, jazz has played an incredibly important role in the music we continue to listen to today. Many of the songs we covered in today's episode continue to have a life on FM classic rock stations, although it's been 50 years or longer since some of these songs were first introduced. In future episodes, we'll continue to time travel forward along the path of music's evolution to where we are today. For American Song, this is Joe Hines. I am very much looking forward to talking with you again soon. All the best. Oh, by the way, if anything we talked about this month made you super curious, you can learn more about that when you visit the American Song Facebook page just look for American Song Podcast. See you around, guys. Thank you so much. Thank you.